Rod Ambrose remembers the first time he met Richard Harris. And he was sitting there with his leg on the desk, uh, his legs on the desk, and smoking a pipe. And he wore these horn rim glasses, and he was a little round man, right? Thus we later would call him Mr. Magoo. It was 1968. At the time, Richard Harris was leading a local youth enrichment program for the Urban League, a civil rights and advocacy organization. Richard oversaw the publication of its multicultural newspaper, Youth United. He also led a black writer's workshop. And he was interested in a project Rod Ambrose had written about his family's journey in the Great Migration. So much so that he had a job for him. And uh, he says, well, it'd be a job writing. I said, writing? Writing? Yes. He says, you never thought about that? I said, no, I just write because I love to write and I love reading literature. And uh, he says, well, uh, uh, have a seat. Rod would go on to become a poet and a founding member of Phoenix's Black Theater Troupe. His spoken word productions have connected artists and movements from the civil rights movement to Black Lives Matter. He was just one of the many who succeeded thanks in part to Richard's tutelage. Members of Richard's cohort went on to become documentary filmmakers and newspaper editors. One started the first black radio station in Phoenix. But those he influenced were just part of Richard's legacy. Before starting at the Urban League, Richard worked in journalism for more than 30 years. In 1964, at the age of 51, he became the first black reporter at the Arizona Republic. Despite his pioneering work in Phoenix, both at the Republic and the Urban League, when Richard died in 2010, he did not receive a full obituary. That's something our executive editor, Greg Burton, feels is a mistake. So Greg started looking into Richard's life and legacy. Welcome to Valley 101 a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com where we answer the questions you ask about Metro Phoenix. I'm your host, Kayla White. In today's episode, our executive editor explores the storied history of Richard Harris's journalism career and his importance today. Greg, take it away. Richard Elmo Harris was born on September 12, 1912 in Eastern Maryland. His father worked in a furniture factory, and his uncle ran a grocery store. When Richard was 11, his father moved the family to Chester, Pennsylvania, just outside of Philadelphia, in search of a better job. Richard didn't start high school until his sophomore year. While the school had black and white residents, black students weren't permitted to write for the student newspaper, and Richard struggled to find his path. But he never backed down. Told by a teacher that he was flunking English, he ignored her and took Latin. He uh, loved to read, and by reading and reading and reading, he became very uh, fluid in, in, in things of writing and books. That's Melvin Lewis Jr. He was, he was something else. I, he was my stepfather, but I sure loved him, you know. In his autobiography, The American Odyssey of a Black Journalist, Richard wrote that at age 14, he jumped into a creek, although he couldn't swim. That gumption, he wrote, was the bedrock of his success 
as a journalist. After high school, Richard didn't land a full-time reporting gig until he was 27. Among other backbreaking work, he operated a wheat thresher in eastern Pennsylvania and slept outdoors to get by. When the publisher of the Philadelphia newspaper, Afro-American, told Richard he paid by the inch, Richard started freelancing until he was hired by his hometown newspaper, the Chester Times. There, he wrote a column called Among Our Colored Citizens. With that column, Richard hoped to undo the erasure of the black community in town. He wrote that as a child in Chester, he'd grown up without his teachers elevating black history. To quote from his book, race-wise, we were living in a present voice, no records of our past, no barometer for the future. Reversing such neglectful storytelling would become a driving mission in Richard's life, and he wasn't alone in that. My name is Matt Delmont. I'm a professor of history at Dartmouth College, um, and I focus on uh, the history of civil rights and African-American history in the 20th century. Matt said that the Black-owned and operated press in the 20th century was instrumental in telling stories that were ignored by mainstream white press. So if you were to look at um, a mainstream or white newspaper uh, through most parts of the 20th century, so really up until the civil rights movement in the 1960s, the only time you'd really see any news about African-Americans was when someone committed a crime. Um, so there's hardly any real coverage of the sort of political life or cultural life of, of black people. And this includes major cities like Chicago and New York, uh, Los Angeles, that have very large and thriving black populations. And that's to say nothing of the everyday lives of black citizens. So things about births and deaths and funerals, things about weddings, um, uh, birthdays and parties and celebrations, dances, movies, all the stuff that was sort of the, kind of the beating heart of, of black communities wound up in black newspapers. Richard started his own black newspaper, the Delaware County Crusader, in 1945. As editor of that paper, he pushed for equal rights for black servicemen who had fought in World War II. He questioned why black policemen weren't promoted. He pushed for integration of a local movie theater. Eventually, Richard would have to shutter his newspaper. Local politicians pressured his advertisers in response to his crusading efforts. But his career wouldn't end there. From 1933 to 1964, Richard worked for 10 newspapers in nine different cities. He worked for incredibly influential black newspapers such as the Pittsburgh Courier and the Los Angeles Sentinel. Then, in 1964, he landed in Phoenix. Richard had hoped to one day retire in Arizona and bought land on spec in Apache Junction. Nearing the end of his career, he wrote to the Republic's publisher at that time, Eugene Pulliam. He'd heard a rumor that Pulliam was interested in hiring a black reporter and wanted to offer his services in case that was true. After receiving a glowing recommendation from the Pittsburgh Courier, Pulliam hired Richard to cover poverty. Richard arrived at the Republic during a momentous and tumultuous period in our nation's history. The year before, thousands of African Americans were arrested while protesting segregation in Birmingham, Alabama. 
Among them was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He would go on to lead the March on Washington the same year, delivering his famed I Have a Dream speech from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. President John F. Kennedy was assassinated in 1963 as well. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. And in 1964, when Richard joined the paper, President Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act. The law outlawed discrimination on the grounds of race, religion, and sex. This is a proud triumph. Yet those who founded our country knew that freedom would be secure only if each generation thought to renew and enlarge its meaning. There was no shortage of history being made at that time. Phoenix was no exception, although the Republic was far from progressive. Its editorial writers cheered the defeat of civil rights legislation in 1956 and doubled down in 1961, despite the injustice of segregation in schools, restaurants, hotels, and neighborhoods. The U.S. Commission on Civil Rights held hearings in Phoenix to document segregation and poverty in America. This was Richard's beat. Bob Early, who would become managing editor of the Republic, remembers Richard as a quiet, workmanlike reporter. We had a really small staff back then, you know, and uh, you know, it was everybody was all hands on deck. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't think there was any consideration of race. I think he just came in and worked. Arizona was on the rise nationally. Barry Goldwater was running for president ahead of a conservative revolution. Courted by President Johnson and wary of Goldwater, Eugene Pulliam ushered in a shift in style and philosophy at the Republic by hiring L.A. Mirror editor J. Edward Murray to lead his newsroom. Murray put Richard on the poverty beat the year LBJ declared a national war on poverty. We have the resources in this country. We have the ingenuity. We have the courage and we have the compassion and we must, in this decade, bring all of these strengths to bear effectively. Richard recalled being assigned to cover issues in black and Latino neighborhoods, but wrote that he proved to be as capable as most white peers and soon found news stories outside the stereotype bounds. He never confided to Bob what he and other black Phoenicians faced. There was a gap between what Richard experienced and what his co-workers understood. The town was pretty segregated. Mm-hmm. I know, but, but uh, you know, I don't know how he would have fared. His mentee, Rod, who you heard from in the beginning of the episode, said that Richard was a humble man. I've forgotten even how I learned that he was the first black reporter for the Arizona Republic. And I think when I 
uh, I was around other people when we, when I wanted to address it with him, you know, uh, and he did not, uh, he uh, downplayed it uh, at the time. In a 2004 article following the release of his autobiography, Richard said this about his time at the Republic. Frankly, there were times when I detested some of the paper's ultra-conservative editorials and stories slanted in favor of the establishment, but he still hoped to make a difference. The tension between Richard's aspirations and the reality of the time played out in print. His first front-page byline in the Arizona Republic appears on August 17, 1964, although it's hard to notice it. It was not given priority over a more salacious national story. Stretching across the front page is a headline that screams, Chicago Riot Rages in all capital letters. Although it's not a local story, it dominated the entire page. A full 17 graphs or paragraphs were dedicated to it. By comparison, Harris's first cover story merited only three and a half graphs before jumping inside. He was writing about a resolution from the disabled American veterans that would protect its membership. After all, a previous leader had built more than $2 million from the group. Although Harris's story was local, and perhaps of more consequence to Phoenicians, its treatment was paltry compared to the treatment of riots almost 2,000 miles away. Nevertheless, Richard persisted. He continued to write stories of consequence to communities of color. He wrote about black and Mexican leaders petitioning Phoenix Mayor Milton Graham for better funding for their communities, including education funding. In the summer of 1964, he wrote a series on illiteracy in the inner city, documenting 39,000 people, 14 and older, who couldn't read, and another 11,000 who'd never been to school. And his life in Phoenix was filled with other triumphs. He met and married Laura Dungee. Laura was a graduate of Carver High School, the only all-black high school in Phoenix. She worked as a riveter during World War II. I found a video of her being interviewed for an oral history project with the Arizona Historical Society about her work at the time. Well, I guess that uh, any type of work that you do influences your life, and you don't necessarily uh, think about it, but it really does influence your life. And, how you think, how you, how you treat it and all. And she was no stranger to journalism. She was born in Oklahoma City, where her uncle, Roscoe Dungy, found and edited The Black Dispatch, one of our nation's great newspapers. Ralph Ellison, author of Invisible Man, said he honed his craft reading Dungy's newspaper. In 1921, the Black Dispatch broke the story of how white rage led to the Tulsa massacre on America's Black Wall Street. Melvin, Richard's stepson, who you heard from earlier, remembers that he actually met Richard before his mom, Laura, did. Melvin worked at an international house of pancakes that Richard frequented. They met. At one time, he was staying down at the Jefferson Hotel, and... There used to be a a little club. I think she met him there. And like I said, he treated us just like we were one of his own, you know. 
1967, after three years with Republic, Richard longed for a more active role in the fight for civil rights. He would spend the next 12 years at the Urban League, mentoring black and Chicano teenagers, encouraging them to fight segregation by marching and picketing and writing and acting. But he was unlike anybody else that I knew uh, because he was always uh, interested in what I was doing uh, for myself and as a creative. That's his mentee, Rod Ambrose, again. Rod said that Richard would push those under his watch to strive for the things that scared them. One example of this is when he sent Rod to cover the National Black Political Convention in Little Rock. I had no idea how to approach them. And, uh, but he was so patient and he would always uh, uh, comment, commend me for my work and my efforts. And uh, because of him, I got a, a different jobs. After decades of reporting, Richard's list of contacts was vast. He booked high-profile Black authors and artists for speaking events at his Black writers' workshops. Rod remembers actors Morgan Freeman and Al Freeman Jr. made appearances. Nikki Giovanni, the poet behind 1968's Black Feeling, Black Talk, spoke to the group. Alex Haley, author of the autobiography of Malcolm X, was another guest. And, and he was sharing all about writing and telling us the, about mechanics and things like that. Uh, some things that, which we didn't have much interest. We just wanted to know about the Malcolm X stuff, right? <laughs> and his interviews with Malcolm X. And, and it was just an exciting uh, 90 minutes, I think it was. And it went by like, three minutes, you know. It was so impactful and, and, and intense. Richard even arranged for kids to be extras in the movie The Great White Hope. Rod said that he got to know James Earl Jones while working on the set of that film in Globe, Arizona. He even read him some of his original poetry. Ultimately, Richard's dream of retiring to Arizona came true in 1976. He turned that two-acre plot in Apache Junction into a home. A 2004 article from the Arizona Republic describes it this way. Superstition Mountain stares down at a dirt road leading to his concrete block house, far removed from the racially charged society that angered and inspired Harris. Even after he retired, Richard was dedicated to preserving the truth. In 1983, he interviewed Hazel B. Daniels. Daniels was the leading prosecutor on a case that desegregated Phoenix Public Schools before the Brown versus Board of Education ruling. It's the only audio of Richard that we could find. Okay, we can get back to Phoenix now. Uh, some of the things that you were involved in Phoenix, uh, were you involved in any organizations, or yeah. any, any of the organizations that were, you know, involved in civil rights yeah. organizations? I spent all of them. Did you have any cases for uh, black uh, police brutality or anything like that when, with the NAACP, when you were with the NAACP? 
Richard Harris died on March 9, 2010. He was 97 years old. As we said earlier, despite his pioneering contributions to our city and our newspaper, he was not given a full obituary. That is by no means a reflection of Richard Harris or his legacy. Art Gissendanner started at the Republic a decade after Richard left, but they met once. I recall his eyes uh, like never really leaving me. Uh, and I could tell that, you know, for some reason I got the impression that he wanted me to succeed. At that time, Art was the only black reporter working for the paper. Bob Early, who you heard from earlier, was an advocate for Art. That helped him succeed, but he knew he was walking on a road that had been paved by Richard. Um, and what I'd like to say about about uh, about Richard Harris is that he, you know, he wasn't physically a, a large guy, but he had very broad shoulders, figuratively speaking. And something I tell a lot of young people now is that we all, where we are now, we all are standing on someone else's shoulders. And anyone who thinks that they got to where they are, I don't care if they're African-American, Hispanic, or even Anglo, they think they did it on their own. They are wrong. Because it took a lot of blood, sweat, and tears of a lot of people that came before us uh, to enable us to be where we are right now. Today, we're seeing history unfold in ways that feel familiar to some. Next, newly released police body cam video showing the last minutes of George Floyd's life. Anger and frustration are still fresh more than four months after 26-year-old Breonna Taylor died at the hands of Louisville police. Can you say her name? Jennifer Dokes was the first black journalist on the Republic's editorial board. I feel like I'm living the history of my ancestors. This, this stuff is what we read, what I read, not what a lot of people read in school books, but it's, it's, it's the history of, of oppression, of bigotry, of discrimination, of bias, of two Americas. It's, it's, We've lived this before. My, my, my ancestors, my grandparents lived this. Jennifer joined the Republic two decades after Richard. For her, the struggle for true equality feels as urgent today as it did in 1964. Some of the gaps in society persist. Divisions still linger. Fear still remains. In Chicago, the numbers fall the same. Most of the people who've gotten sick or died are people of color. Nearly 70% of all COVID-19 deaths in the city are African-American. The city says that's nearly six times more fatal than what's being seen by their white neighbors. But hope persists as well. We see it whenever a new height is reached. When Lloyd Austin arrived at the Pentagon today, he broke through what's been called the brass ceiling. 
In a 40-year career, he was the first black officer to command a division in combat, the first black officer to command an entire theater of war, and now the first black Secretary of Defense. I, Kamala Davy Harris, solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States. That I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic. That I will bear. What remains now is a chance to move forward while bearing in mind the legacy of those like Richard Harris. Hey listeners, it's me, Kayla again. Greg, thank you so much for your reporting on this episode. Is there anything else you would like our listeners to know about Richard Harris? Thanks, Kayla. There's so much to tell. This is just a remarkable story about a remarkable man who deserved much more than I think we gave him. One thing listeners should know is that after leaving the Republic, Richard worked with alumni of Phoenix Union High School, such as the late Calvin Good, to create what we know today as George Washington Carver Museum and Cultural Center, which celebrates the history of Black Phoenicians and forever documents decades of injustice. Wow, his influence really does extend far and wide. Well, listeners, that's all for today. A few quick notes before we wrap up. Audio in today's episode comes from the Department of the Air Force, Inside Edition, CBS, and the LBJ Presidential Library. Additional audio comes from ABC News and PBS NewsHour. This episode was edited by podcast editor Katie O'Connell. If you'd like to learn more about Phoenix history, we have a few more episodes that might interest you. In 2019, I did an episode about Phoenix's history of redlining. We've also produced episodes about how the creation of Phoenix's highway system reinforced segregation in the city. And thanks to reporter Elizabeth Montgomery, we have an episode about what it's like to find your community in Phoenix when you move here from a predominantly black city like Atlanta. All of those episodes and more are available wherever you get your podcasts. Whether that's Apple Podcasts or Spotify, be sure to subscribe for more. And if you have a question you'd like us to answer, send it to us at valley101podcast.azcentral.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at valley101pod. I'm Kayla White, signing off until next week. <laughs>